0: to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bishop, and today we're going to talk about San Luis Obispo's affordable housing policies. There are many reasons to love San Luis Obispo, but the cost of housing is not one of them. The median price for a single-family home in the city of SLO is now more than a million dollars. The city's been working on this problem for a long time. In fact, in 1999, SLO adopted an inclusionary housing ordinance that was meant to increase the number of affordable homes. That ordinance is getting an update this week. On Tuesday, City Council will decide whether to adopt some policy changes that staff is recommending. Here to help us understand the ordinance and the proposed update is Rachel Cavesti of Cavesti Consulting. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. Well, first, I would love to get your help with some terminology. So what is inclusionary housing and how is it different than affordable housing?
1: That's a great question. I know a lot of these terms kind of get muddled in conversation and even in staff reports sometimes. So affordable is very much what it sounds like. It's basically providing housing that the bulk of the community can afford um, at all different income levels inclusionary housing is a set of policies in order to promote affordable housing. So it takes in quite a bit more than just providing a physical home. It provides zoning and in-lieu fees, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, and all kinds of other strategies to try to provide that housing.
0: I'm glad you mentioned in-lieu fees because yes, that's another term that I would love some help with. The city's website says, the city's committed over $10 million of affordable housing in lieu funds to help with the development of deed-restricted housing units. What are in lieu funds? And while we're at it, what is deed-restricted affordable housing?
1: Sure. So actually, I'll take that in reverse order. So deed restriction is a really powerful tool to maintain affordability in housing. First, let's talk about the difference between affordable housing and market rates. So market rate are those million dollar homes that you know just float up every time we get more demand surges. Um, everyone wants to live in beautiful central California on the coast. And so the market rate just keeps going up here. Occasionally we have plateaus. Once in a very great while we have a dip in housing prices, but mostly that's a trajectory that just goes up. So affordability, you know, that that gap between The market rate units, which continue to escalate in prices, while wages for ordinary people typically don't escalate as rapidly, that's the gap that inclusionary housing is trying to bridge. So in order to do that, we can use um, deed restrictions, which means that you take a house that would ordinarily be market rate, let's say, just for the sake of the argument, this will be a $750,000 home. And so it's brand new, built by the builder. But instead of putting it on the open market and selling it for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, instead you'll sell it for say four hundred thousand dollars. So there's an actual deed restriction that's recorded against the property that says that this property won't be sold for more than, and then you'll get a number from the city, more than four hundred thousand dollars. Those deed restrictions typically phase out over time. So for example, maybe your $400,000 deed restricted house will be able to increase in selling price by 2 or 3% every year. So if you, if you live in the house for 20 years, you don't have to sell it again for $400,000. You can sell it for more than that, but it will still remain far below the market rate units that are going up 8 9 10% a year.
0: Is San Luis Ranch an example of a recent development that has that sort of deed restriction on the housing?
1: It is indeed, yes. So San Luis Ranch, we very deliberately tried to create a number of different product lines that would basically form a ladder of affordability. So we partnered with People's Self-Help Housing to do the very, very low income housing for us. And then we have everything from studios to one, two, three, four bedroom apartments to townhouses and condominiums to single family homes. So we tried to provide a range. And then the inclusionary requirement for that was at each of those, on each of those product lines, we had to um, deed restrict a certain number of them so that they would be affordable for everyone.
0: And what do the developers get out of that arrangement? What's their incentive to have de restricted housing as a part of a new development?
1: So it's really important, I think, for the community generally, as well as for any new development coming in, to have a broad range of people involved. I mean, if you look at very old societies where, say, the old cities in the East Coast or even in Europe, people lived close by. You didn't have enclaves of very wealthy folks that were sequestered from you know, everyone else. You didn't have, there there have unfortunately been traditionally ghettos, but there was a lot more intermixing of folks from different parts of the economic ladder. And so I think the very first thing that developers and the entire community gets out of inclusionary and deed restricted throughout a project is just the ability to be a community for your teachers and your firefighters and your nurses to live with your uh, service industry workers the folks who who wait tables and you know clean up and all of those things and so you've got kind of everybody in the same neighborhood using the same parks and schools and amenities it's a really great way to enrich the community just by building the community so that's one and then on a more financial basis, developers get a density bonus typically for including inclusionary housing in their development. So instead of say, instead of 20 units, maybe you'll get 22 if two of them are affordable. So it's a it's a bonus for them as well.
0: And are most of these developments by people who are living in the area or from the area, it seems like the, the quality of life benefits that you mentioned would seem most attractive to people who have a connection to uh, slow county in particular
1: so san Luis obispo is pretty unique in that we have a lot of good builders and developers here so we do see mostly local people that are developing these projects which is great Um, they know the community they know the folks that they're going to be serving the people who are going to be living in these units So yeah, I've always found it very gratifying that we don't have kind of the big, bad developers coming in from Los Angeles or the Bay. Typically, it's it's folks that have lived here for decades and really know their community and know what the community wants. I want
0: to go back for a minute to the definition of in-lieu fees. Can you help me understand that one too?
1: You bet. So in lieu fees, if, if a developer chooses not to build affordable housing on the project site that they're, where they're building the market rate units, they can choose to pay in lieu fees, which are fees that are basically equivalent to the amount of capital that would go into an inclusionary unit on the site. And instead they just write a check for those funds. That goes into the city's inclusionary housing fund, which is separated from the general fund and from all of its other resources and is basically just squirreled away for inclusionary housing, which means that it can be used in other parts of the city by another developer and by folks like Habslow and People Self Help, the affordable specialists in town.
0: So, the existing ordinance that had deed restricted units and other elements that that were meant to result in affordable units did result in hundreds of affordable housing units. But in 2020, a consultant did a study and found that the housing market was still not meeting the affordable housing demand. I'm not sure we actually needed a study. (laughs) We all know that (laughs) anecdotally, but uh, but now we have the data to support that. Does that indicate that the original inclusionary housing ordinance was a failure or what went wrong?
1: I definitely don't think it was a failure. One of the things that the inclusionary housing ordinance did succeed at was, again, building that ladder of different kinds of units, so in all different affordability levels. So however, you're right that the inclusionary housing ordinance as it was originally composed didn't end up generating the number of affordable units, particularly at very low and low income levels that we had anticipated. And I'll back up a little bit here to explain that every eight years, I think it's eight years, the state sends out RENA numbers. It's regional housing needs assessment numbers. And it basically tells every jurisdiction in California, basically how many affordable units they need to generate for us to have the housing stock that we need across the state. So uh, each community is allocated a number and those numbers are based on very low units, which would be affordable for folks who earn under 50% of the median income and then low, which is 50 to 80% of the median income. Moderate is 80 to 120% of the median income. So they're very precise numbers that we're trying to hit. And the original inclusionary housing ordinance from for the city did not generate the numbers, again, particularly at the very low and low levels that we were looking for. Again, it was incredibly successful in driving the average size of units and average size of lots way down. I can tell you on San Luis ranch, we actually ended up with units that were five to 600 square feet, smaller average than we would have absent the inclusionary housing ordinance. So it does squeeze those units down to make them more affordable for folks at the moderate level. And so our, basically our our workforce here in San Luis Obispo. But again, it was not successful in the, the very prescribed objective that it had, which was getting those affordable units at very low and low income levels.
0: Do you happen to know offhand what that median income level is, just so we can assign numbers to those percentages?
1: I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the median income in San Luis Obispo County is about $80,000 a year. And that's household? Um, and that's household, Right. And so the median income in the city may skew a little bit lower because I'm sure that the census data captures the student population as well, but we can use 80 as a round number.
0: So then what is the city proposing? What's going to change with this update?
1: So there are some really beneficial things coming out of this update. First of all, the city in its original inclusionary housing ordinance distinguished between expansion areas, which are San Luis Ranch, Avila Ranch, um, Froom Ranch, which is coming, and the rest of the city. So they had different standards for those expansion areas. And there's been a big push in the last few years, because we were such a small, tight-knit community, for there to be citywide standards that apply to everyone, regardless of where you live and where you're developing. So they've made that shift from expansion areas being peeled off to a citywide standard set. So that was wonderful. The other thing that I think was really beneficial that they've changed is that they used to base their in-lieu fees on the valuation of the housing being constructed. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a developer, You know, if if you're trying to pull permits in 2022 and having to guess what that's going to cost you by the time you finish the houses in 2025, right, it's a very squishy number. It's hard for anybody to transparently, even from a developer standpoint, transparently document what the valuation of that construction job is going to be. So instead of using valuation, they're now going to just have a flat fee per square foot which is so much easier for the public to track. You know, you can just see how big the houses are, how big the, the apartments are, the condos are, that are being proposed and do the math. It's a simple multiplication exercise. So that's going to simplify staff's work. They won't have to try to scratch their heads and figure out, well, how did the developer come up with this valuation and are lumber prices or are, you know, is the price of concrete going up, down, sideways, so it simplifies it enormously. Those were, I think, some really positive changes that came, are coming out of the inclusionary housing ordinance so far. And then there are things that I was a little bit concerned about, actually, that I think the big one being, uh, this is going to sound very wonky, but it, a little gadget that we've had in the inclusionary housing called Table 2A. Oh, yeah. And- I'm, <laughs> I'm
0: glad you mentioned yeah. Table 2A. That's what I keep hearing about. So uh, So thank you. Um, What is Table 2A and how can we de-wonk it?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So Table 2A is embedded in the current uh, inclusionary housing ordinance, and it's a matrix by which developers can decide to push their unit sizes on market rate units down to have fewer deed restricted units, if that makes sense. So again, putting yourself in, in the shoes of a developer who's building 100 units And you would have to typically have 20 of those deed-restricted affordable. If your unit size, the average unit size goes down significantly, you can cut that by 25% or 50%. So it generated more housing that was affordable to the city's workforce. But as you can imagine, that kind of pits affordable housing in the state-defined way that that's used against the missing middle, lower end of the market rate. So they're eliminating table 2A in the inclusionary housing ordinance. Our concern was that that was going to lead to housing units in San Luis Obispo that were just larger. If developers don't get any bonus or any consideration for building smaller units, they're going to make more money on a 4,000, 5,000 square foot house than they will on a 1,000 square foot house. So we were a little bit concerned about taking that pressure off of the market rate units. But I'm being told by city staff that that table is not actually being eliminated for good out of the city's toolbox. It's just being moved out of the inclusionary housing ordinance into another portion of the housing element.
0: Okay, so some of the concern around Table 2A was that the thinking was that it was going to be removed entirely, and the reality is that
1: it's just being moved into a different process. That's our understanding right now, yeah, and obviously we have a whole host of, of folks who are very interested in making sure that that happens, so there are a lot of interested parties who who really want to see the city continue to be so successful in generating market rate units that are on the lower end of size and and the higher end of affordability.
0: My last question for you is what impact do you think this update is going to have? Is it going to make a big difference in terms of the number of affordable units in this next cycle of inclusionary housing? You know,
1: I don't really think it's going to make a huge difference and I hate to say that. I don't want to be defeatist, but Actually, the reason it's not going to make a a tremendous difference is because the state has done such a great job of late in promoting inclusionary housing. So the state is now offering a density bonus for developers who are willing to make their units smaller and to include affordable units. So I think what's going to happen is that most developers in our area are going to use the state bonus uh, density bonus laws for affordable housing rather than processing things through the city's inclusionary housing ordinance. Having said that, it's still a very worthwhile exercise because it does set up and maintain the system of inclusionary housing fees so that it maintains that bucket in which developers who don't want to provide affordable housing on site can submit in lieu fees that the city can use to develop that that housing everywhere And I would put in a plug again for our affordable housing manufacturers because those folks, much like the food bank, and if you've ever wanted to donate to the food bank, they tell you that $1 of donation equals $7 of food. Yeah, we love that. Love that. And you you can do much the same thing with housing. So because of the nonprofits networks at the state and federal level, they're able to turn those inclusionary housing dollars into you know, multiplied funds by getting matching grants and, and other things that allow them to actually build more affordable housing with those in lieu fees than the developer can can do on his own site. So that's a really important tool that we're still going to have in our toolbox. And I think that'll be useful for decades to come.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to explain all of this. It's such complicated stuff. I think we need to have a separate conversation about state housing laws and why they have changed in, in recent years and how they're affecting communities. But for now, this is really helpful going into the meeting on Tuesday. Thanks, Kim. Now it's time for today's action item. You can access the proposed update on the city council agenda and on Open City Hall, which is the city's online public engagement forum. I will link to both in the show notes. Questions can go to housing at slowcity.org. And of course, you can submit public comment by email, phone, or during the meeting on Tuesday. This won't be the last time housing issues will come up. So I recommend that you also subscribe to the city's e-notification list so you can stay informed about housing-related workshops, documents, and hearings. I will link to that as well. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bishop. If you liked the show, you can go to AgendaBreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bishop. See you next time on Agenda Breakdown.